0: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. So I've been doing this Bible in 90 day challenge as of late, and I read in Numbers chapter 23 that... God, Moses writes, is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Then I also remembered, though, that I had read in Genesis chapter 6 that the Lord was grieved that he made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. And in Exodus 32, it says that the Lord relented and did not bring on his people a disaster which he had threatened, which was to destroy them. Which, if you look into the Hebrew, the words used there for God being grieved and for God relenting is the Hebrew word hamach, which I probably didn't say right, so feel free to correct me. But it's a word that means to repent, to relent, as it's translated there, or to change. And then I just kind of got curious, and... I started looking through the Bible, and it turns out that the Bible has used that Hebrew word hamach to talk about things that God has done more than just those couple examples that I gave. Uh, One of the most notable ones is in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where it says that the Lord regretted making Saul king. And that's at the beginning of the chapter. And just a few verses later, it also says that the glory of Israel, speaking of God, will not lie or change his mind for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And then I did some more digging, and I saw in Jeremiah chapter 26, Jeremiah writes, Did Hezekiah king of Judah and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And the Lord changed his mind about the misfortune which he had pronounced against them. But we are committing a great evil against ourselves. And then there's the entire story of Jonah, right? Where God says to the prophet Jonah, I'm going to destroy Nineveh. And, I mean, you know the story if you've ever attended Sunday school, right? Jonah runs away from the calling of the Lord for him to go tell these wicked Ninevites to repent. Eventually, God, by means of a gigantic fish, sometimes uh, referred to as a whale, uh, gets a hold of this prodigal prophet. And what happens? Jonah eventually wakes up, realizes the calling of God, goes into the city of Nineveh, preaches, repent, and the whole city repents. And then It seems like God changes his mind because then he exercises compassion on this city. And though the prophecy was that he would destroy the city, he didn't do it. And then Amos, the prophet, in the seventh chapter of his book, records twice in verse three and verse six, God changing his mind on a similar promised judgment that he would not bring to pass. It says, it shall not be the Lord changed his mind. Verse three and verse six. So what gives? It's a common historical Christian doctrine to say that God is unchanging. The theological term for it is immutable. God is immutable, which, as A.W. Tozer puts it in his book Knowledge of the Holy, is to say that God never differs from himself. The concept of a growing or developing God is not found in Scripture. It seems to me impossible to think of God as varying from himself in any way. Here's why, A.W. Tozer continues, For a moral being to change, it would be necessary that the change be in one of three directions. He must go from better to worse, or from worse to better, or granted that the moral quality remains stable. He must change within himself, as from immature to mature, or from one order of being to another. It should be clear that God can move in none of these directions. His perfections forever rule out any such possibility. God cannot change for the better, since he is perfectly holy. He has never been less holy than he is now and can never be holier than he is and has always been. Neither can God change for the worse. Any deterioration within the unspeakably holy nature of God is impossible. Indeed, I believe it is impossible even to think of such a thing. For the moment we attempt to do so, the object about which we are thinking is no longer God, but something else and someone less than he." The one of whom we are thinking may be a great and awesome creature, but because he is a creature, he cannot be the self-existent creator. And A.W. Tozer, somewhat more of a modern writer, isn't alone in this. Another great theologian that I can think of is Thomas Aquinas. You know, Thomas Aquinas, the Italian philosopher who lived in the mid to late 1200s. Thomas Aquinas, the philosopher and theologian in his Summa Theologia*, one of his most prominent theological works, he spent a great deal diving into the immutability of God, defining that it is God's pureness, his purity and his holiness, much like A.W. Tozer said, is what makes him completely unchanging in every single thing that he does, in every way that he acts, in every way of his potency, and every display of it, Aquinas writes that God is immutable, and yet Thomas Aquinas also wrote commentaries of the very scriptures that I read to you at the start of this podcast. And so at first glance and at face value, it kind of appears like we have somewhat of a contradiction going on. God's immutable. God's incapable of changing. That's what classic Christian theology that has been taught through the past 2,000 years tells us, is that the God of the Bible is an unchanging God, and yet there are several verses, and there's probably even a couple more than I just listed, that says that God changed his mind, or that God changed. So what gives? Well, to understand this, we got to not think in the current dimension in which we think, if that makes sense. And let me kind of dive into what I mean here. You see, God is eternal, which means that he is not bound by time, nor does he operate within time. Time is what we are bound by. We can't do anything outside of time. Every single thing we do is marked by a period of time. And for us, time moves linearly. You can't go back, right? It's 2021 as I'm recording this, and none of us are capable of going back to 2020, which I'm sure if any of us were given the choice of which year to go back to 2020 would not be the year probably any of us would ever choose to go back to, am I right? But we also can't jump ahead. None of us have the ability right now to go to 2030. And I'm tempted to make a DeLorean joke or a Back to the Future joke because I really love those movies. I'm tempted, but I won't. But I'm tempted, and you should know that. But you get what I'm saying, right? Time is linear. If we're plotting time, time moves only in one direction, the X direction, right? But God's eternal. So God exists and this is the engineer and, and probably the nerd in me coming out, but if, if we're thinking about this dimensionally, right, if we're thinking about this on a coordinate system, we exist in time on only one axis. God exists in eternity in the Y and Z direction as well. And so therefore, and I credit the philosopher and great thinker and speaker, Eleanor Stump, who I've referenced before in this podcast, for this idea Uh, on a lecture she gave that I was listening to, which you can totally find on YouTube. But it's this idea that God is outside of time. And because God is outside of time, he is actually intimately, and that's a very key word when thinking about God's interaction with what is inside of time, because it's as if eternity is, it exists in an arch over time, right? if time is linear, eternity turns the line into an arch. In other words, God can intimately be in every single moment of time, both time that's already happened and time that will happen. God knows no past or future. God only exists in the eternal now, but we are in the temporal now. So in the temporal now, we know a temporal past and a temporal future. And God knows those too. He's just intimately in every single one of them. And so the theology of God's eternality then isn't as if God can see into the future, it's that God is in the future. And it isn't as if God can see into the past, it's that God is in the past. But God's also in the now, because he's outside of time, so he's actually intimate with every single moment. And of course, what do I mean by intimate? By intimate, I mean present. By intimate, I mean involved in every single detail of every single moment. Does your brain hurt thinking about this? Probably. I don't know. Mine does when I think about this. And that's because the main point I'm getting at here is that God's vantage point we'll never have. None of us will ever know what it's like to be completely intimate with temporal past and temporal future. We're only intimate with temporal now. Even at the very recording of this podcast, I am not currently intimate with the moments I was spending just a couple hours ago eating lunch at my kitchen table nor am I intimate with the moments I will spend several hours from now eating lunch at my kitchen table tomorrow. If I'm even eating lunch at my kitchen table, I might be eating lunch at a restaurant or something. Who knows? I'm not there yet. But God knows because he is there. Which then does kind of bring another very real question of, do we actually have free will? Uh, Let's answer that next time. So pause there, keep that in mind. We are going to get to that next episode. Spoiler alert! But suffice it to say, I could make the statement that tomorrow for lunch, I am going to eat pizza. Is that statement true? Well, maybe if I'm planning on it, and even though I'm planning on it, something may happen where I don't eat pizza tomorrow for lunch. And so, in other words, the qualifier that actually makes that statement true or not doesn't exist for me, but it does exist for God because he's already intimately in that moment because he's already outside of time. Now, let's say it wasn't pizza. Let's say, and Please don't call the cops, because I'm not actually planning on doing this. But let's say I made the statement, tomorrow, at lunch, instead of eating lunch, I'm going to go steal a car. Or worse, I'm going to go kill someone. Now, the qualifier that makes that statement true for me or not doesn't actually exist, because I'm not intimate with that moment. Sure, I can plan to go steal a car or commit murder, but circumstances may arise which may prevent me from doing so, or I may have a change of mind. The difference is God is already intimate with that moment, but God's also intimate with this moment as well. And this is a moment in which I am considering spiritual things and recording a podcast. For you, this is a moment where you're considering spiritual things and listening to a podcast, and that may please God. Right, And that would be a very rational and reasonable thing to say if you have any knowledge of the Bible, right? That if you are considering spiritual things, if you're spending time meditating on what God's Word says, questioning, wrestling with it, seeking answers, seeking information, knocking so that it may be open to you, seeking so that you'll find, right? It it makes sense then that you could make the truth statement of what you're doing now pleases God. And the truth qualifier is there for you because you know that Those who seek after the Lord, right, will find, and that it's that process that God is pleased with. And then the truth qualifier would also be there for God, because he's intimate with this moment right now, the moment in which you are seeking spiritual things, seeking to know the Lord more, and the truth qualifier would ring this statement as true. So then suffice it to say, in this moment, you are listening to a podcast seeking spiritual things, I'm assuming, and God is pleased. Well, if we apply the truth we know from God's word about God being pleased with those that seek him and God being displeased with sin, and we apply that statement to the statement I made of, I'm going to go commit murder tomorrow at lunch, or I'm going to go steal a car tomorrow at lunch, the truth qualifier isn't there yet for me, which means that in this moment, in the temporal now, before that statement becomes true or false, hopefully false, (laughs) definitely false. I don't plan to do that. But God is still pleased with me because that statement has not become true. So from my vantage point, God is pleased with me. Now, if that statement were to become true, I think it would make logical sense to say God is displeased with me. The truth qualifier is there for God. But notice something. There's a change, right? It goes from today, where I'm eating pizza for lunch, and recording a podcast and discussing and thinking about and researching spiritual things and trying to understand the nature of God, who he is, and I can say God is pleased with me. And if God is pleased with me, well, the logic follows that blessing will likely come. I don't know what kind of blessing. Maybe it's just the simple blessing of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled, right? I'll just learn and get answers to the questions I'm seeking. But either way, blessing is going to come. If the statement about committing murder becomes true, Curse is going to come, right? And that stands to reason for logic. God promises that throughout his entire law in in the Old and New Testament, right? That what you sow, that will you reap, right? If you sow good things, you're going to reap good things. If you sow evil, you will reap condemnation. You will reap curse, right? And a curse is a blessing taken away. It's the opposite. And so from my vantage point then, what I could look out and say is, today, God is pleased with me. If the events of tomorrow do transpire in a way that I commit a sin or a crime, I would then say, today God is not pleased with me, which could then be inferred as God changed his mind about me. But of course we know God did not change his mind about me. And that statement should give us pause. It should actually cause us to say, wait, wait a second. Hold on, did God change his mind about me? Can he do that? Well, yes and no. So let's back up and think about this logically, right? If God is indeed immutable, if God is indeed unchangeable, and he is working with creatures that are changeable, and that for the sake of discussion of this podcast, we'll assume have free will, like I said, we'll get into that next week, well, for God to be unchanging at all, we have to infer, like A.W. Tozer and like Thomas Aquinas said, that God is pure. Not that whatever is pure is God, just like God is love, but not that whatever is love is God but that God is himself pure, holy, and righteous. And therefore, it's not really a stretch of the logical and rational imagination to say that God has an unchanging attitude and nature towards sin, which the Bible's very clear about, right? The Bible says God hates sin. And then it's also no stretch of the imaginal or rational imagination to say God has an unchanging attitude of love towards his creation of a perceived worth and value that God assigns his creation. That does not change. But what happens when that creation changes within those bounds of an unchanging God? Well, this is where it gets a little bit sticky, right? Because if the events of tomorrow do transpire in the worst possible way, and I end up committing murder or stealing a car, or both, who knows, and I I commit sin, I sin against the Lord. Whereas today, the day before, God was really pleased with me, we'll assume and tomorrow he's not, what would have transpired then is not God changing his mind about sin, is not God changing his mind about who he is, is not God changing his mind about the created nature of me, is not God changing his mind about the value judgment or value call of worth of who I am. And it's not actually even God changing about his love for me. Because if we take this concept of eternality with eternality being above the temporal now, temporal past, and temporal future, that it is intimate with all three of those at the same time, then that means at the cross, when Jesus was dying, he knew that I would sin tomorrow, and the cross then paid for it. Intimately, the cross paid for it because he was in that moment. God was in that moment while performing the justification and payment of that sin at the cross. And that can be said of every single moment of sin then. That because the eternal now is intimate with the temporal past, present, and future, that at the cross, God was intimate with every single sin every single person would commit at every single time over every single life that's ever lived in the course of human history. And that's confusing as Frick. And the Bible was written by simpletons. And the Bible is still read by simpletons. First and foremost, being the person you're listening to in this podcast right now. Yeah, there's metaphor and there's poetry and there's complex ideas in it. But come on, the people that wrote this stuff were shepherds and fishermen and poor people and people that God told to marry prostitutes and God called to weep over a nation and a homeless dude that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years after killing an Egyptian. So what we have then, in order to grasp the judgment of God, the feelings of God, the hurt of God, the pain God feels from sins committed against him, the anger God feels when sins are committed against his people, his beloved. In order to really understand that, what happened then when the writers of the Bible, Old and New Testament were writing, is they did something that we now look back at and call anthropomorphism. And that is the quality of assigning human characteristics and human attributes to the behavior of God. Why is that? Well, it's because of what I talked about. We're observing an eternal God who acts in the eternal now from a temporal now, and we see things he has done in the temporal past, and we hear of things he will do, and he pronounces them in the temporal future. But you see, when God pronounces something, he's doing it. For example, the return of Christ. God pronounces this because he is already intimate with that moment that Christ comes back. To us, it's the temporal future. It hasn't happened yet, but it's happening right now for God, just as much as the prophecies about the cross. When Isaiah gets the prophetic vision from God saying, Arise and shine, for your light has come. Behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the people, but the glory of the Lord will be shown upon you talking about Jesus coming into the world, right? God gave that prophecy 600 years before it happened, but he was intimate with that moment. God in the eternal now is still just as intimate with that moment as Jesus entering the temporal now was while it was happening. But that's really complicated and really complex, and we can't relate to that. And that's the other side of things. (laughs) That makes it even more complex, is that not only is there an immutable, unchanging God, who's intimate with every single moment of time, but he also must be intimate with every single person that lives in time, every single person that is very much changing. The human life is a constant life of change. And not only that, the Bible says he relates to us. And so it's not just that we assign human characteristics and qualities to God, it's that he also assigns human characteristics and qualities to himself and ultimately assigned himself human form in the person of Jesus Christ which now that we've already talked about God living in the eternal now and being separate from the temporal now, now we have to think that God as Jesus entered the temporal now in our temporal past and will do it again in our temporal future. How's that for a mind bender? But anyway, back to the the question here as we're running out of time. It almost seems like these two concepts then live in tension. And that's because they do, and they must live in tension. Because if they don't live in tension, like A.W. Tozer said, we don't actually have a God. If there's a way to explain that God changes and doesn't live in the eternal now, then what we have is a God who is surprised by human activity and human thought and human emotion. But then if we have a God that never changes, lives in the eternal now, and we can just brush aside those verses that say God changed his mind, and in so doing, what we would do is say that God has no relation or interaction with the temporal now, that God's view of a person or rather, a person's holiness and a person's standing position before God never changes, is to have a cold and distant God, not the God of the Bible. Neither of those two descriptions of God would be the God of the Bible. And therefore, like Tozer said, they would be a lesser God. So the two attributes, then, of God being intimate with the temporal now the temporal past the temporal future and having this anthropomorphic quality where we can relate to him and though it seems like he is changing his mind and it's even recorded in the halls and pages of scripture that god changes his mind as well as being in tension with a god who is unchanging that scripture also says is unchanging and does not change his mind those must live in tension for us to have an eternal intimate god who lives in both the eternal now and the temporal now. But anyway, we're out of time. Let's talk about free will. Let's keep keep these concepts fresh, though, as we jump into the next episode here in a couple weeks, that there's, there's a different dimension that God is in. And we'll kind of explore what that means uh, next time as we get into free will and do we actually have it. But like I said, we're out of time. And so I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to reach out to me on social media, though I'm getting really bad about posting on there. Email the show if you've got questions or you just want to talk a little bit more on any of the subjects you've listened to. And as always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you've enjoyed the show.